Hello and thank you for joining us. Welcome to Zooming In on Hate, which is a podcast series bringing together the brightest minds to figure out solutions to hate speech and disinformation. And throughout this series, we regularly speak to various voices from tech, civil society, law enforcement and policymakers to identify and analyze the latest social media trends. And this podcast forms part of the European Observatory of Online Hate, or EOOH in short. And tonight, we're really, really pleased to be joined by Musa Borekba, who is a research fellow at the Barcelona Centre for International Affairs, or CDOB. He is also adjunct professor at Blanquerna Faculty of Communication and International Relations and at the University of Barcelona, where he teaches international relations in the MENA region, terrorism and violent radicalization. But before we start, allow us to introduce ourselves as well. My name is Jordi Nainais and I'm with Dare to be Grey. And I'm Lydia El Khoury and I'm with Texgame. So hi, Musa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for inviting me. You're more than welcome. Um, so to, just to get us started, can you tell us a bit about the work that uh, CIDOB does and your role in particular? Yes, definitely. So CIDOB is, uh, its full name in English is the Barcelona Center for International Affairs. It's a think tank and actually it's the oldest think tank uh, working on international relations in Spain. This year will mark our 50th anniversary. So um, at CIDOB, we have different departments that focus on international relations through different perspectives. For instance, we have a department of geopolitics and security, which is the one to which I belong. Then we have another department working on migration and integration of migrants and refugees. Um, another department is focusing on the role cities can play at the, 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 the global stage. So, um, and then another department also focuses on European affairs. So um, this is sort of overview of CDOB. And then I would say in our capacity as think tank, we constantly interact with three types of public. So the first one is of course, uh, policymakers who are looking for solutions or recommendations to certain issues or even for analysis. Uh, then, of course, scholars, the academia, because most of us uh, work as researchers in this institution. And finally, the general public. So that requires organizing public events, but also um, responding to interviews in, on TV, uh, in the radio and in other kind of, of media. So in my case, um, as a research fellow, I'm in charge of international relations in the MENA region. So that entails analyzing the ongoing dynamics, conflicts in this huge uh, area. And on the other hand, I work on violent extremism. And I would say more specifically on what we call PVE, preventing violent extremism, which means uh, the set of policies and strategies that are being used to prevent uh, the emergence of violent extremism. Thanks for that overview, Musa. So I'd like to zone in on the um, violent extremism element of your expertise. Tell us a little bit about the state of play at the moment. It's it's extremely hard, actually, to to summarize, let's say, the the research and projects that are being carried out by thousands of, thousands of scholars worldwide. Um, this field of research is pretty recent, 
it doesn't have more than two decades, I would say. And with regards to what we call PVE, a bit more than 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 one decade. So as far as I'm concerned, I would say that research focuses on plenty of issues, but uh, amongst the ones in which I'm interested, I would say that the issue of violent uh, extremism, of online violent extremism is truly topical today because of the growing sophistication of methods uh, used by violent extremist groups to recruit, to spread their propaganda and so on and so forth. Um, also, we see uh, a very interesting growing body um, of the literature and also the number of scholars focusing on far-right far extremism that happens not only uh, in the United States, but also in Europe. And this is um, ever-growing. And finally, as I was saying before, um, in the field of what we can do not to counter the threat, to counter the existing threat, what we call counterterrorism or countering violent extremism, but rather what could be done to prevent the emergence of the threat. And this is also a pretty um, recent um, issue. So I would say, I mean, if, if you ask the same question to 10 researchers, I guess you will get 10 different uh, answers because we do have, I mean, we have different research areas, uh, but I would say, yeah, those are the topics um, of interest as far as I'm concerned. And can you tell us a little bit about when it comes to prevention policies, what direction, I know I know it's hard to kind of generalize across the entire field, but insofar as you can, just for outsiders looking in, give us a taste of what direction policies are taking, where the trends are in relation to pol uh, preventing violent extremism and, and what's what's working, what's not in, in Europe, for example. It's also, yeah, also uh, very, very complex questions. But I would say the general direction of uh, what we call PVE policies uh, for now, I think we are moving more and more towards what we call uh, multi-stakeholder approaches on one hand, which means uh, that these policies should not be under the control or monopoly of security forces and intelligence bodies. I mean, we do need um, to set up holistic policies where you do have as implementing agents. It can be the um, civil servants from the city council. It can be a religious leader. It can be a uh, youngster leading a grassroots organization. So um, this is a direction towards which we are moving. And also I would say that PVE policies are more and more uh, moving towards multi-level policies. So that means that we are becoming aware of the fact that violent extremism is almost always uh, context specific. It takes different forms. And that also calls for uh, local PVE policies. You cannot just come up drafting a national policy to prevent violent extremism at national level and just relying on state organizations to deploy it. You actually need to move, as I was saying before, towards stakeholders who are credible, whom you can trust, uh, whose voice is being heard in the communities. And I would say that this is one, um, this is the, the two main directions towards which um, PVE is moving. With that being said, 
when it comes to the question what works and what does not, um, research is still in progress, I would say. But what makes it incredibly complicated when it comes to evaluate the effectiveness of these programs is that in this case, what we are talking about is preventing violent extremism. So it's about preventing something that does not exist. Um, with that being said, it's extremely hard to evaluate PVE policies as such because you cannot um, demonstrate a correlation between a policy that is being set, let's say a PVE policy in the city of London, and a non-event. There is no terrorist attack because we have implemented this. You can't. And actually, many of the cities and, 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 and countries that have deployed violent PVE strategies have been faced with terrorist attacks, which does not mean that the PVE policy is not working. So you see a little bit how, how complex um, it is. So I would say that because it is very hard to understand what works and what does not, um, research has focused um, pretty much on what does not work. And as said, the policies that are exclusively relying on security bodies, on messengers which are not credible, uh, which do not include stakeholders that are relevant to then implement the policy in the community, are not uh, working. What works uh, generally is when you start developing a PVE policy um, that is tailored to a specific context with different uh, stakeholders. But I think the most important parameters is that all the stakeholders being involved into these policies have shared definitions of what is violent extremism, what is the phenomenon you try to prevent. And that also requires shared objectives. You need to have the same objectives if you want a policy to be um, to be to be effective. And finally, you need a certain degree of trust between the different stakeholders involved. So this is also um, um, a critical aspect of of these policies. But as said, we have to think that PVE is something extremely recent in the scale of recent history. And it's a work in progress. So what we see are government, city councils, regions, and, and other institutions developing programs, trying to adjust them. And, and I think that that kind of shows that we are going towards the good direction, and at least when there is political will to do so. Yeah, it, it sounds like it's a, it's a field that's very much still under development. We're gaming it out to see what works, what doesn't work. Um, you also mentioned that the online element and the online aspect to PVE is quite new or recent. Um, can you tell us a bit, little bit about that? How important is it to focus on the online side of PVE as well? I mean, it's extremely important because um, we have seen, I mean, this is not new. It's true that the interest in 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 working specifically on online PVE is pretty recent, but the use of online technologies by terrorist organizations is uh, not new at all. Um, with that being said, I think it's a critical sphere in which efforts should take place because it's the place where people can virtually meet. It's, uh, I mean, it's also online where people can recruit other people 
although depending on the country and the context, we see that uh, face-to-face contact is still crucial for recruitment, although it's not um, necessary. Um, And I also believe that um, the web, also the the dark net, um, are places where you can easily spread your propaganda and make it being read and and viewed and watched and heard by millions of people. I remember, for instance, when Brenton Tarrant entered into this mosque in Christchurch in 2019, he was uh, doing a live on Facebook. And the video, although it was um, blocked a few minutes later, it was uh, back then it was already being uh, watched by over a million people. So that shows a little bit the the the, the reach of uh, using such technologies. So I think for all these reasons, and and there are certainly many more, um, working on uh, PVE online is uh, completely crucial. So Musa, I, I want to talk to you particularly about young people and how do you see how do you see their vulnerability or their situation in relation to PVE? How how much of a focus is on them and their potential role in the exacerbation of PVE? So <clears throat> I led uh, research studies a few years ago on the role of youth and women in, in preventing violent extremism. And, 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 and that was a little bit after... Islamic State has gained momentum in Syria and Iraq, having this caliphate and this territory uh, controlling millions of, of people. And what we could see and what we still see is that uh, youngsters are, um, their share amongst violent extremists is has been increasing actually over the past decade. And that could respond to... Um, I think, yeah, I would say that that could respond maybe to two uh, facts. So on one hand, of course, terrorist organizations have deployed propaganda strategies targeting youngsters. This this means that youngsters have not become suddenly vulnerable to violent extremist ideologies, but rather than that violent extremist organizations have developed the necessary material have looked for recruiters who can understand youngsters, adapt their propaganda message to uh, their needs and their desires, but also research from different fields, be uh, being political science, anthropology, or even psychology, have uh, has shown that youngsters um, constitute a vulnerable segment of the population, and this is due to different uh, elements. And here again. As it often happens, there is an ongoing debate on all of the elements that I may uh, mention. So one of them, for instance, is the idea that the youngsters are being affected more than the general population by the lack of prospect. And this is what, for instance, the Belgian researcher Rick Coulset has called the no future youth subculture, right? So this idea that if you have no prospect in the future, then why not joining a, a violent extremist organization which will give you a cause to defend and may make you become a hero right if if you if you if you act then what we can see not only in europe but also in in different parts of the world 
youngsters are generally more subject to interconnected processes of exclusion that can be political exclusion, that can be economic exclusion, that can be social exclusion. And I remember, for instance, that was pretty fascinating that the propaganda displayed by uh, ISIS towards youngsters from North Africa was not about, hey, come and just behead a lot of people to go to heaven, but was rather, if you come here, you will not only restore the caliphate, you will be promised to go to heaven, but also you will have one wife, maybe more wives, you will have a house, you will have a job. Anyway, you will become an adult, which is something that you cannot do in your society, right? Um, and, and, and this is like a, a pretty interesting uh, element. Then when it comes to research uh, from the field of psychology, we know that youngsters have a stronger orientation towards action, towards uh, risk, but also adventure, and that can also make them uh, more vulnerable to, to, to violent extremist propaganda. And finally, this is an element that is also being discussed, uh, which is critical thinking. We may think that youngsters uh, have uh, a sort of uh, less critical mind than adults because they need more time and, and experience, right, to become more critical. But this is, again, this is a, a pretty controversial point. So at this show, we've discussed the impact of the, the COVID pandemic a couple of times. And I think the, the general consensus is that this has led to an increase of disinformation, conspiracy theories, distrust uh, towards governments. Do you feel like the COVID pandemic has changed the dynamics surrounding uh, violent extremism as well? Do you feel like there's there's more of a breeding ground now? It's um, it's also hard to, to give a sort of uh, definite answer to, to that question because the effects of COVID have been um, different, sometimes contradictory on violent extremist groups. For instance, the initial lockdowns uh, that were applied in most countries worldwide uh, have meant a, a, a dramatical decrease of terrorist activity, right, in, in most of the places worldwide, basically because people could not take the streets and perpetrate a terrorist attack and, and there was nobody, right, uh, to be amongst the victims. But on the other hand, COVID, um, let's not forget that we do have some violent extremist groups that control territory uh, in the Sahel region, in certain African countries, in the MENA region, in Afghanistan, uh, among others. And COVID had also the effect uh, or became an opportunity for such groups to show local populations that they could be alternative providers of uh, goods and services to their population, thus increasing their prestige or their popularity, at least uh, amongst uh, local communities. So it is true that COVID has also meant, as you said, uh, that we would spend more time on in front of our screens, right, of the laptop, of the smartphone, which also means that mechanically speaking, a growing uh, part of the population would consume uh, propaganda material coming from violent extremists. Yet uh, the pandemic started only two years, yeah, almost three years ago. So uh, I think you may find a correlation between the rise of violent extremists and uh, the pandemic. 
but correlation is not causality. So this is another story. And maybe we would need uh, some time to determine that the surge of violent extremist activity that we have witnessed in the past three years was effectively um, caused by the pandemic. Maybe it has been encouraged. Maybe it took other proportions. But I completely agree with your initial statement in the fact that um, there is more and more disinformation, more and more conspiracy theories, and that translates into lower levels of trust towards our institution. And and it's not, and, and I'm finishing with that, but it's not a surprise that we have seen, I think, yeah, for the past year or past two years, uh, a new line into the agenda of PVE policies and strategy, which is what we call anti-government extremism, right? Which is uh, a sort of controversial uh, concept in my view, but I think it's not uh, it's not a mere coincidence that this happens three years after the pandemic. Absolutely. So we, we, we'd like to kind of dig a little bit deeper into your other area of expertise, which is Islamophobia, Musa. What are you seeing? Are there any glimmers of hope, any improvements in and around? There was a really, really high spike in Islamophobia pre-pandemic. Has that settled? Has it gone down? What are you seeing? Again, it's it's hard to talk about a trend, uh, a, a general trend, because uh, Islamophobia is a phenomenon that you can observe in today's India, uh, in Palestine, or in France, the UK, or or Spain, and it always takes uh, different different forms. So um, by the I mean after the end of the pandemic. Uh, I wouldn't say that the level of Islamophobia has has decreased, but I think one of the general trends that I have um, the feeling is happening, and and I think by using the tool of the European Observatory of Online Hate, this is something that you can see, is the growing participation of actors which would not otherwise be labeled as Islamophobic. I mean, people have more and more freedom just to express their Islamophobic views. Uh, We have seen also many attacks targeting Muslims with uh, some media not labeling the attacks as Islamophobic, right? Talking about people mentally ill or maybe racist, but um, not Islamophobia. But online, I have the feeling that it is part of um, several other um, forms of discrimination, exclusion, and racism. Um, and, and that, yes, Islamophobia is becoming one of these parts, basically. So, for instance, something which, w- which I was not expecting, uh, to be honest, was the, um, the huge amount of Islamophobic comments that were done during the World Cup under the pretext that Qatar was holding this World Cup, under the conditions and circumstances that we uh, all know, right? Questions of bribes, corruption, uh, mistreatment of uh, migrants, and and so on and so forth. But the Islamophobic dimension of many comments and even op-eds, pieces, conferences talking about this, to me was uh, pretty, pretty striking. So whether I see a glimpse of hope um, I see people organizing themselves 
building, for instance, cyber coalitions to fight against Islamophobia. We also see grassroots organizations which are uh, kind of, uh, of fighting this phenomenon and some leaders who are fully aware of the fact that this is a phenomenon you have to deal with. Um, I'm just thinking, I think Justin Trudeau, three or four days ago, have, uh, has named uh, a sort of a special envoy to, to tackle Islamophobia in, in, in Canada. But at the same time, in other countries, uh, for instance, from France, which is the country where I'm from, politically speaking, it still has not been acknowledged. People reject the definition of Islamophobia, uh, arguing uh, some weird reasons and, and, and reusing some fake news by saying Islamophobia was used by religious extremists to dismiss any criticism of the religion. So anyway, we have a phenomenon that is targeting Muslims because they are or they are perceived as Muslims. So let's talk about what is happening, whatever the name you you, you give to it. So with that being said, uh, Lydia, and, and, and again, it's hard to talk about it in, 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 in general terms, but I think that if you have any upcoming election, especially in Europe, or if you have a terrorist attack that is being committed by somebody who is identified as Muslim, or if you have a new uh, uh, migrant or refugee crisis at the borders of any EU country, uh, you may have new surge and, and spikes of Islamophobia. Absolutely. So it, it seems like a problem that's that's always there, right? Even if it's not really surfacing, it's it's constantly there. So trying to end on a on a high note or a happy note, imagine we hand you a magic wand. And with that magic wand, you can fix the problem of Islamophobia online. What would you do? <laughs> That's, uh, I like the question. Um, I think I would make any Islamophobic actor or any person who expressed Islamophobic views I would just arrange a meeting between that person and any random Muslim on earth. I think that would be uh, that would be something that I would definitely do because um, in most cases I think that people and, and and this also works for racism. It also works for sexism and and for other uh, phenomena. But I think that when you read or analyze the comments and discourses of people talking about Muslims you definitely have the feeling or even the certainty that they never have met any single Muslim uh, in their life. So I think that would, be the, uh, that would be what I would do in the first instance. And maybe in a second instance, I would oblige any single person talking about Islam to have uh, a Muslim individual next to him or her, which I think is also important. Yeah, it, there's a lot to be said for proximity and familiarity. You know, it's it's that's a lovely idea, Musa. I I wish your dream would come true. I wish too. So, Musa, thank you so much for joining us on Zooming in on Hate. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much, Lydia. Thank you, Jordi. Thank you for giving us your insights, Musa, and also a warm. Thank you to the listeners today. Uh, make sure to subscribe to our mailing list at www.eooh.eu. You can subscribe there and you will be updated on our next episodes, other insights. And you can also join us on Twitter and LinkedIn. 
So, and the last thank, thanks uh, goes to our funder, the European Commission's Rights, Equality and Citizenship Programme by DG Justice. Musa, thanks a million. Uh, really, really fantastic to speak to you. Thank you very much.